You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show, the show where we talk to the experts, ask the questions that you'd ask, and break down archaeological discoveries and concepts in an easy-to-understand way. Welcome to The Dig. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 28. I'm your host, Chris Webster. And I'm April Camp Whitaker. On today's show, we're going to talk about something incredibly exciting, writing in archaeology. Let's dig a little deeper. Okay, welcome to the show. Uh, as we said, we're going to talk about writing, and uh, we have a couple of special uh, guests in the background, but I don't think they're going to be saying much, but they do affect the writing process. So, well, April, you want to uh, let us know exactly what we're going to be talking about today and, uh, and maybe tell everybody who our guests are, but I think they know. Yeah, so Chris and I were realizing that we needed to put out a podcast and trying to brainstorm some topics. And I was sitting in my office and staring around, you know, the bookshelves, as you do when you're an academic. <laughs> and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, you know what? Let's, let's talk about writing. Let's talk about what we're actually doing or what I am actually doing. Um, since I spend my days sitting, staring at my laptop and pretending that I am diligently and dutifully writing thousands of pages of dissertation um, mm-hmm. and, you know, writing thousands of pages of dissertation at two words a day, <laughs> um, and easily getting distracted by our permanent special guests, which are my kids, um, who hopefully will remain quiet for a while. They're in their baby containment devices. So they're excellent writing tools. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they need to listen to these podcasts because I've got them scheduled for interviews in like six years. So, you know, you know I was just talking to a, co- a colleague in one of my cohort who is also the child of archaeologists and saying that at some point soon we need to do a child of archaeologists who are archaeologists podcast. My God, um, that would be awesome. We'll, we'll bring this. So stay tuned, everyone. This is a sneak hint of a future podcast. Um, we'll we'll try to get uh, we'll try to get Richard Leakey on and uh, Louise Leakey as well. <laughs> All right. I might overshadow yeah. the rest of us a little bit. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. All right. So on the topic of writing, uh, we've got a couple. We've got sort of an approach to how we're going to do this, but it is going to be a little bit, uh, you know, take it where it can go. And um, but April, why don't you kick it off and and I guess. I guess introduce the topic in a way that we can start this off and in, in how you were thinking it would go. Yeah. Well, I wasn't really, didn't have a specific direction because like any good paper, when you sit down, the first thing you have to do is think about what it is you're actually going to be writing about or talking about in our case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just thinking about how important writing is for archaeology. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when people think about archaeologists, it's that Indiana Jones aspect and we're out there and we're in the field and we're traveling and we're collecting raw data and, but 
actually the act of writing up all that raw data is probably the most important thing that we do as archaeologists. But I think especially for people who are not archaeologists, it's probably the least understood in part because so much of what we write isn't really made for people to actually read. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time writing dissertations and theses and academic papers or reports if you're in CRM and, you know, some of it becomes public books or conference presentations and articles and blogs and podcasts, but that's only, you know, the tiny, most interesting fraction of all of the research that we do. Um, and so I was just thinking it'd be kind of fun to chat with you know, you who come from a different side of archaeology and just sort of talk about what are all these different pieces? How do you approach them um, and start thinking about them and going into the writing process? Um, and then where do you even go to find good archaeological writing? Like there's always the fake, <clears throat> to go into current politics briefly, you know, there's fake news uh, <laughs> and there's real news. And I feel like there's the same thing in archaeological data and writing um, so how do you as a consumer know which pieces are good archaeological writing and which ones are kind of sensationalized or bunk? Right. Well, that's that's a really great place to start because uh, you're right. As, you know, as archaeologists, most of our – well, as any real science, um, you know, every – Every new discovery or revelation typically comes in the form of some sort of journal article, some sort of peer-reviewed journal article, which means it was submitted to a, uh, a respected academic journal in your field, and that article was sent out to other people who could be able to comment on it, who have a familiarity with what you're doing, and then can suggest you know, research directions or simply some writing corrections or things like that. And that's, and that's basically peer review in a nutshell. And it takes a while to do, and, and then it goes out there. But... What most people get exposed to are, you know, uh, articles, BuzzFeed articles, you know, New York Times articles, whatever the articles come out from. But those articles are typically being written because somebody in the science department for that uh, for that outfit is keeping an eye on current journals and publications. And then they're going to write something based on probably the headline and the abstract because who knows if they even have access to the journal. So that's where we have to, that's where we come in with our writing skills is we need to be able to write things in a clear and succinct way no matter who we're writing for and which we'll get into is who is your audience for who you're writing for but we need to be able to write things in a clear and succinct way so it can be distilled down uh, by the media and then the general public can then hear it because that's really what this is all about is it's about telling people what we found I mean that's that's basically what the Archaeology Podcast Network is, you know, it's like we're, we're doing this, but in a verbal way. But in writing, we're telling people about what we found because we don't want to keep it secret. It's not like physics where no one's going to understand it. <laughs> it's archaeology, it's history, and it's culture, right? We're doing these things so people can hear them, understand, and learn. So, you know, it's, it's all about that. On a side note from that, I've realized that one of my pet peeves is when you're talking to someone who's in academia or any career field and you say, oh, what do you do? What are you working on? And they say, well, you wouldn't understand or I cannot explain it to you. Because I feel like if you cannot verbalize to someone who's not in your discipline what it is that you're doing, then there's just something fundamentally wrong with your understanding of what you're doing. Um, which right. may be my personal bias, but I've discovered that this drives me crazy, especially when you hear it coming from someone who is just as educated as you are or who's speaking to a well-educated audience of people who just happen to not be in the same 
field. Um, I think we mm-hmm. get so caught up in sort of these mic, mic, like minutia of what we do and the specialized language and kind of micro concepts that we forget sort of these larger dialogues and how to present them coherently to people who are not in our specialty. And I think that for us, that comes out in things like writing reports. Um, you know, there's a very kind of formalized language that you use or in mm-hmm. writing dissertations, there's a structure that you follow and everybody follows it. And you have this dense theory chapter that no one really wants to read. Um, and you have a lengthy <laughs> background that's sort of hashing through everything that everybody has ever done in the topic. And, you know, just sitting there thinking about this as you are sort of replicating that process is really interesting. Um, and then looking at you know, all the writing guides mm-hmm. that tell you how to write these things. Um, and flipping through them, it's it's very formulaic. It is, and there's a reason for that. You know, when you're when you're writing like your dissertation, um, or I'm writing a, a site report for a project in in cultural resource management, our our results and the, and the way that we came to them need to be mm-hmm. reproducible. They need to be understandable by somebody in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. They need to know exactly what we did, the tools we used, even if they're theoretical tools, to uh, come to the conclusions that we came to. And then by understanding our framework, they can understand how we came to our opinion, and they can also form their own opinions and and theses based on what we did. And that's the whole point of that type of writing. But when you're writing, if you're writing, if you were asked to write an article about, uh, let's say you you work at uh, Amache um, a lot, so if you were to ask to write an article about Amache for the New York Times, um, you're probably not going to talk about your you know your research theories and and get into all these different, you know these different theoretical concepts and frameworks, you're, you're going to write an article that the average person who reads the New York Times can understand. Oh, yeah. Def- I mean, I hope I would. Uh, and I hope that the New York Times contacts me <laughs> about writing an article for them because I feel like that would look great on my year-end reviews that I have to turn in to the faculty at ASU. Um, so in That's terms right. of public outreach, done. But no, it is true. It's, it's about... And one, I think, one way I was starting to think about it, and I think a lot of people in academia at least think about things like dissertations, is you're sort of writing, very few dissertations get published in their entirety. Very, people, few, very few people write a publishable mm-hmm. dissertation. They write something that can either be converted into something publishable in a book format, or you're sort of writing something that then you can cannibalize. Uh, and tear apart into eight or ten different, maybe not that many, please let it be that many, um, but three or four different <laughs> publishable articles. Um, and so I think that that's, mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting way to think about writing something, is you're not writing something that necessarily is going to be read in the format that you were writing it by very many people, but that gives you the ability to alter it and turn it into a bunch of different publications. Um, and I don't know if CRM mm-hmm. reports ever function in quite that way. No, I don't think anyone would ever publish a CRM report. Um, not in any but shape or form. Would you ever kind of try to draw off some of that material? Well, yes, and that gets done all the time. So CRM reports are usually the base thing you do because we have paying clients, so that's the first piece of writing that we have to turn mm-hmm. in, right? But from that, lots of different things are written. People write journal articles. People write conference presentations. Um, people do write books. Um, I've got a book on my shelf that's based on a CRM report that was written about uh, an excavation here in Reno. And so from that one report, from that that activity, a number of different pieces of writing were created. There's another site that that same company worked on 
where I've seen them present at conferences. I've seen them their papers in uh, um, in different journals, and I think they're working on a larger publication for that as well. So that does happen, but that's what you got to do, and and that's that's a good example. Is my the book that I wrote was based on blog posts that I wrote, which was which were some of which were, were based on work that I had done and writing that I had done. So I had to take that initial writing, convert it to more of a blog post format. To me, a blog post, a lot of academics don't see it this way. They they still see blog posts as a way to maybe publish and and you know help them get tenure, but. I never saw blog posts that way because I'm not trying to seek that. So I saw blog posts as a conversation between me and my audience. So I'd write it as a conversation. But even when I took those blog posts and I told my publisher, I want to take this collection of blog posts and basically put, you know, categorize them, put them into logical chapters and make them a book. She's like, okay, that sounds great. But I still had to do like a lot of rewriting mm -hmm. because the blog post format didn't quite even though I had the similar audience and I had a similar sort of voice and style, it didn't quite translate exactly. So I had to update and change those posts slightly. Um, well, more than slightly, she would say slightly <laughs> for the book format. And yeah, and if I was to present this information, which I have, some of these blog posts I've presented at conferences, um, it goes into a completely different format then because now there's a PowerPoint presentation that goes along with it. So it's just... You know, you, you could have the same topic and rewrite it 15 different times for the different mediums you want to put it out in. And I've definitely been thinking, thought about that because, you know, when you're pre preparing for conferences, people always ask for your paper. And I, mm -hmm. if I can avoid it, I've rarely written a paper because the format of oh, a presentation to me is so different than the format of a paper. Um, the lo even the logical structure of how you're going to present data is different when you're talking it through than when you're just writing it down. Um, so I, I think about that a lot, all mm -hmm. the different mediums and forms that we have to be able to manipulate our data into um, and the same ideas, which in some ways is really interesting because I don't know if you've ever done this where you read something and you're like, I'm pretty sure I've read this author saying kind of the exact same thing. And because we are manipulating the same <laughs> sets of data in so many different ways to produce different types of answers, um, because archaeological data mm -hmm. is just so vast and the same set of shirts could be used to answer four different questions about a site. Um, that you kind of get this interesting repetition of certain types of information. Yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, my God, your note about conference presentations too. <laughs> I stopped writing papers almost immediately when I started giving conference presentations because after you after you sat through so many presentations that were people just literally reading from their paper. And I had one guy actually read click because he had typed it into his paper <laughs> so he could click forward his presentation. Like he was so nervous. The first one, he actually said it and then he caught himself. But uh, yeah, it was just like, and then they put stuff up on the screen. They put just as much info to read on the screen as they do in the paper. I, the screen should have no words as far as I'm concerned. I mean, a few words maybe, but nothing people actually have to read. Just labels are fine, you know? And I like picture captions. I like to know what a picture is, and that's about it. That's that's fine. Yeah, that's perfectly fine because um, you should have that. But no, like, paragraphs of text <laughs> that, are, that are either copied from your paper and you're just basically reading them or something that somebody has to read to take away from what you're actually saying, you know, because that, that means they're not listening anymore. Um, and, then, and then timing. Oh, my God. This isn't a podcast about conferences. Oh, my God. It's such a pet peeve for me. <laughs> 
timing is a big one. No one ever practices. So you're only there to really hear, okay, what is your thing and what are your conclusions? But all the stuff in the middle, they're still reading it. And by the time they get to their conclusions, they're at their 15 minutes and they're being called off the stage or called out in front of the podium. And they're like, oh, if you want to hear the rest of it, ask me for my paper. It's like, I'm, I'm here to hear your conclusions. So, but that's all about audience. And that's what we're talking about with writing is know your audience and know what you can present to them in the time or space yeah. allotted. And know what parts are going to interest them. Um, and think about how to structure the information so mm -hmm. they can get to those most interesting parts effectively and quickly um, without getting too bogged down. I mean, maybe that's one of the nice things about some of the dissertation chapter or dissertation formats where you can skip the theory chapter if you want. Um, you know, it's not integrated in mm -hmm. in the same way necessarily. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it is. I actually like it when it's been integrated in. I think that it contextualizes why you need to know this information. That's true. That's true. And in some cases, like like in CRM reports, I'd rather it wasn't integrated in because I want to know. Sometimes I just want to know. I want to see the maps. Where are you? What are you talking about? How much did you find? And then I want to shoot straight to the conclusion to find out what you think about this. If I want to, if I'm going to go out there on that site, and now I need to know, you know, more information about exactly how you did what you did, then I'll skip back a few chapters and I'll read about that. But I want it very compartmentalized into exactly what I need to know when, as far as a CRM report yeah. goes. Well, and it's nice too, to be able to say, okay, I want to know what the artifacts were. I want to see artifact counts because mm -hmm. that's the data that I'm planning on tearing, using, grabbing out of your report or, right. um, no, that is really nice. Yeah. So it, it's hard to think about all these different audiences. And I think I think that's a place people get lost because there are so many different venues of archaeological writing of keeping track of who is your audience in this case. Because um, even not talking about conferences, but talking about conferences, when you go to a small regional conference, the type of people who are showing up at that conference are very different than the people who are showing up at, you know, our giant national conferences. Um, you get a little, mm -hmm. a few more kind of advocational archaeologists or um, local archaeologists who work for contract companies who don't necessarily have the capacity to send everybody to these big national conferences. But it's all about going back to your audience, I think, with the different writing styles. You know, the types of writing that we do, we've talked about a number of them. Um, in fact, I think we've basically talked about all of them in one way or another. Yeah. Um, so we're going to take a... We're going to take a short break, I think, and then we'll come back and talk about what kind of skills it takes to write some of these things. Uh, and I think this is important, even though this, this podcast is for a general audience. I think it's important to know where the people who are writing the material that you're reading is are coming from. You know, what kind of skills do they have? What kind of skills should they have? And how can you recognize that in their writing? So we'll be back in just a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. All right, we're back on the Archaeology Show, and we are talking about writing, different types of writing. And uh, now we're going to talk about some writing skills. But one thing, one thing I wanted to mention uh, for people that are listening to this, they're probably seeing articles uh, one of the best ways to kind of see the source material for that article, because the news articles don't have to, um, they basically don't have to cite references at the end. You're not going to see references at the end of an article, of most articles anyway. But one thing they do try to do, at least some of the more reputable ones, is you'll notice some highlighted text in the article. For example, I was trying to find the original article just this morning on the Egyptian pyramids and the uh, physicists that use the muon detectors or whatever to uh, detect a massive void in, in one of the large pyramids at uh, Giza, the Khufu's Pyramid of Giza, because actually I wanted to contact them and see if they'll come Ooh. on the show. So I know. So the best way to do that is to go to the original paper because they almost never cite like the scientists in the article because <laughs> nobody knows who they are. But they did have some highlighted text, and they said in this article in Nature this week, which was highlighted, so I clicked on that. That brought me to the article in Nature, and I could read actually a good portion of the article. Um, turns out most of the authors are Japanese, uh, so I'm not sure. Hopefully, hopefully they speak English well enough for us to understand them on the podcast. Um, I'm sure they do. I mean, they were in Egypt. Usually, the common language for people that travel around the world is English, so I'm sure it's okay. But uh, but anyway, that's the whole point. Try to find something within the text that links you back to the original text if you want to try to read that. Now, sometimes it will link you back to a, a secure paywall article, but you'll at least be able to read the abstract, which for anyone that doesn't know, an abstract is basically one paragraph that summarizes the entire paper. It says, here's our problem. Here's kind of what we did a little bit. And here was sort of our solution, our, our conclusions. I mean, the, the abstracts are amazing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the one way scientists can be succinct. You know, they say they wrote an 85-page paper, but here's a single paragraph that says everything we did. Which in and of itself is a skill, figuring out how to write a nice abstract that actually conveys what you have done. <laughs> it's difficult. It yeah. is. Yeah. It's uh, something I was going to bring up in the last segment. It's like Alan Alda's, um, what is it, his uh, fire, what do they call it, the fire, um, something about the fire problem or something like that. It's basically he gets scientists to explain fire and how fire works so that like a five-year-old can understand it or a seven-year-old can understand it or something like that. Maybe it's a fifth grader. I can't remember. But he's like, you crazy scientist, explain how fire works to a fifth grader. That would be like saying to an archaeologist, you know, Explain post-processualism so a seventh grader can understand it. Hell, most people can't explain it so a college freshman can understand it. <laughs> I, I have actually been in discussions about what the point of theory is <laughs> if we cannot break it down to a point where we can teach it in introductory classes to undergrads. Yeah, I remember being totally confused. Like if we can't explain... Yeah, if you can't explain archaeological theory at a certain level, it doesn't have to be the most complicated in-depth level, but, you know, at a level where they can read and understand and function with it to someone mm -hmm. in a freshman class, a freshman theory class, then, you know, how, how useful is it? I know. So, all right, well, let's talk about writing skills. So, April, where... Did you what do you remember being taught formally how to write anything or was it just the hand on the ruler uh ruler on the hand red line that taught you the hard way how to write? <laughs> um 
yeah, I really distinctly remember being formally taught how to write, and it was not in school. Um, mm-hmm. I, I am the world's worst speller. Like, I will confess <laughs> that I would not be in a graduate program without the beauty of spell check. Um, I don't know. Everyone says if you're a good reader, you will be a great speller. And I think that is the most fallacious statement ever because I love to read and I'm a great <laughs> reader and I am a, a, just appalling speller. And so when I was a kid, nice. my parents caught on to the fact that I could not spell to save my own life. Um, <laughs> and they started me doing writing assignments. They started, they made me keep a diary that then they would correct Mm-hmm. Uh, for spelling and grammar mistakes. Nice. Um, it was the most painful experience because no one wants to keep a diary that you cannot actually like write personal thoughts or experiences in <laughs> because you know your parents mm-hmm. are spell-checking it. Um, right. But, you know, in many ways it was really useful. And from there I graduated on to writing kind of short stories and different writing projects. But basically, you know, I had a parent who was willing to sit down with me and go over things that I wrote and talk through what are the grammatical problems, what's the logic behind why that isn't how you or can't you should how you can or should write something and say something. Um, Mm -hmm. and really go through it in a way that I think a lot of people don't experience until maybe college. Um, I know a lot of, Mm -hmm. a lot of, especially private colleges do freshman writing classes where that's basically what they're doing. They're having the students submit papers in order to teach them how to write because there's a recognition that a lot of our public schools at the high school level it's not that you aren't learning to write at a basic functional level, but you're not necessarily being taught to write at an academic level. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I don't remember ever being taught specifically um, how to write. Like, like I, I remember learning uh, by doing a paper and then having the professor say, nope, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, fix this, right? And then you learn through time, hey, if I don't want to get bad grades or if I don't want to have my papers returned to me, then I will, you know, do it the right way the first time. Um, That being said, I think that's just as effective as learning how to, like, work on a car that way. Now, I don't know how to work on cars, but a lot of people that do, they learned by, you know, one thing broke, they tried to fix it, and then they either succeeded or they didn't. And another thing broke, and they tried to fix that. But if if you were to take an auto mechanics class for like three months at a, at a community college or something, you'd probably learn a lot of stuff that would in the end save you a ton of time. So I, I think personally that a, a technical writing course, uh, technical writing and science communication course should be essential for any college probably 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 sophomore-ish, you know, let them get into freshmen and figure out what they want to do. And then if they're going into a scientific field, once they're a sophomore, give them these classes, make them required so they so they don't learn over three or four years how to do stuff. They learn in three months all the most important things and then can practice and hone those skills over time. Yeah, and I think that trial by fire method that you're kind of describing, I think a lot of people go through. I mean, I, I even had that to a mm-hmm. certain extent in college. Um, you know, figuring out, okay, in the first paragraph, you have to state your argument. In the next paragraph, mm-hmm. you have to give kind of the background behind why this is important and just sort of that structure of how to write a paper, um, how to talk about things. I think learning that sort of as you do it is really good, but it's like, you know, if you're learning to fix a car by doing it, you don't necessarily understand the underlying mechanics behind it. And mm-hmm. I think 
but that's something that we really miss out on. Like, I know what a good sentence should look like, but I don't necessarily, because I was never taught fully, the mechanics behind it. Like, okay, your adverb has to come mm -hmm. here, and the noun needs to be done this way. So I can read it and know right. that it sounds wrong, but I don't necessarily know how to verbalize why it sounds wrong. Um, and I think that that's a skill that a lot of people, some people do learn, and I think it's a really valuable skill. Um, and what I think mm -hmm. is especially interesting is we learn a lot of that when we learn a foreign language. Right. But we aren't ever taught our own language structure in the same way. Um, I don't know if you had to diagram sentences and stuff in school. We had to oh, do I've done it before. Yeah. And the teacher gave up. Uh <laughs> <laughs> nice. I actually kind of like diagramming sentences now that when I look back on it. I just was ex I was just exposed to that again not too long ago, like within the last few years. For some reason, somebody was doing something. Maybe it was a movie I was watching or something like that. But when I was in in school as a younger as a younger student, you know, I hated all that stuff because I hated all school for some reason. That's I wish I hadn't because I, I love it now. I wish I could go back to school now and just learn stuff all for a career. But. Um, I really got into math later on, especially in college. I got way into math and took all this upper-level math. And then a few years ago when I saw somebody diagramming sentences, I was like, my God, it's algebra, but for sentences. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like here's the variables and here's how they work together. And it totally all of a sudden just clicked and made sense for me, whereas you know, 20 years ago it didn't make sense even a little bit. So, um, yeah, you just have to figure out what works for you. But that goes back to also – part of writing skills is knowing your audience and knowing who you're writing for. Because sometimes if you're writing a blog post or you're writing something that's a little more conversational, you don't need to be, I guess, as proper and academic as you would with other people. I mean, you still need to be a, a scientist and professional about it, but you don't have to be so rigid with your sentence structure if you don't have to be. Yes. You know what I mean? I think about this a lot. It's sort of writing for writing in an academic style versus writing in the vernacular. Um, and kind of yeah, the gradients yeah. in between where, you know, I, I think about this too as, as a TA, reading students' work, um, especially because mm -hmm. we have them do things like discussion board posts. And there's a huge range there between students who are truly treating it like a discussion online um, and sort of think, writing thoughts and really writing it in a spoken voice, which is really kind of nice. Um, and those who are sort of taking this much more as a formal writing assignment and are laying out their discussion board comments in a little mm -hmm. like micro paper format where they state an argument, they provide background evidence, and they wrap it up in seven sentences. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really interesting to see and think about the power of those different forms where in a discussion board, in some ways, the more powerful form is that sort of spoken voice. And I think the same is for things like mm -hmm. podcasts and blogs, where then you feel like you're conversing with an actual human. But I'm pretty yeah. sure that if I turned in a dissertation or a journal article that was written completely in my spoken voice, um, no one would really <laughs> want to read it. Yeah. Well, you're – and that's the weird thing to me, actually, because, I mean, why why can't we do that? Why can't we – I mean, there's other – there's other fields where, let's say, more artistic fields or more creative fields where they are actually turning in graduate work that is written in a style that is entertaining and fun. Why do we have to be so sterile with archaeology? I mean, I've, I've told people from time and again that I want to start a site record, site description with, you know, 
it was a cold day on the desert and we were, you know, struggling to find or something. I want to make it, you know, entertaining. Why does it have to be so sterile? Who is who is actually asking for that? I wonder <laughs> if it comes from a background of trying to prove that we are a science. Um, you know, there's this discussion of, oh, we're soft science or are we hard science and where do we fall in this gradient and is, is anthropology mm -hmm. a real science? And I mean, we are, mm -hmm. but I think because we have sort of this insecurity, a lingering insecurity about a background in a past where this was under debate, that we feel we have to write in a very formal style sometimes in order to prove mm -hmm. that we are a science. I wonder sometimes, especially when it comes to the type of writing I have to do on a daily basis, you know, just basically conveying information, um, if that sterilized writing sort of takes away bias, if it takes away the implication of bias, like yeah. if I if I write with particular feeling about a site, am I going to influence somebody and in how they think about that site when they read it rather than just a, a basically a statement of facts? Right. You know. OK, well, let's uh, we're going to we're going to cut this segment here, I think. And then we're going to come back and talk about um, where you can find some archaeological writing. Like if you're interested in doing so, we've already talked about it a little bit, we'll, but we'll dive into it and say. Um, you know, where you can find some of this stuff if you're really interested in finding out about sites and, and, and different discoveries and things like that. So back in a second. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, we're back on the Archaeology Show, and we're finishing up this discussion about archaeological writing. And we've talked a little bit about what types of writing you can find. We've talked a bit about, about the uh, skills that you would need as a halfway decent writer, uh, knowing your audience and things like that. So let's talk now about, um, you know, hey, we're, we're assuming this podcast is going out to the general public, and that's who's listening to this, people that aren't technically archaeologists. But where can you find writing about archaeology? Um, uh, personally, I think the easiest way right now, just right off the bat, is archaeological magazines. That's probably the closest you're going to get to an academic journal while taking out most of the academic journal type of stuff and just talking about the fun stuff. Because uh, they usually do have either archaeological journalists or actual archaeologists writing articles for like, you know, current world archaeology and archaeology magazine and even biblical archaeology and some other stuff like that. And there's some smaller... Uh, I think more local archaeology magazines and things like that as well. Um, April, what do you think? No, I think those are a really great source. Um, I mean, I enjoy reading them. And I think even if you are an archaeologist, it's a fun way of keeping up on things that are not in your field um, or mm -hmm. your specialty where you don't necessarily want to know the minutiae, but you kind of like... <laughs> 
I want to know about the new potential chamber in the pyramid. Like that's incredibly cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, I don't necessarily need to read 5,000 words on it. Um, so I think these magazines are, they tend to be really well done. I think, you know, like any publication, you can kind of suss them out and see how wide is their distribution. Um, it's sort of that difference between, um, the New Yorker and Newsweek, uh, where some of them are much more in-depth publications that really are hiring high-quality writers and editors and are doing great field research, um, and others are sort of slightly sensationalist, but still mm-hmm. interesting and enjoyable. Um, you just kind of have to check it out a little bit. Yeah, and I, you're right. I think it's a great way, like you said, to to get the story without all the without all the extras which is one reason i listen to um the archaeology channels uh archaeology news weekly i mean they've got one of the longest running archaeology podcasts out there but that's basically what it is they rewrite the stories that they hear so they're bite-sized little two-minute chunks and you get i think three or four stories every week and it's basically is just the good stuff to meet but the one thing you get from the magazines that you don't get from their podcast or any of our podcasts is fun, shiny, glossy pictures. Oh, the pictures are beautiful. <laughs> Which, oh, they're great. Yeah, you get like a full-page picture with some text over it. And, I mean, you just don't get that from a podcast. And archaeology just demands pictures. I mean, it really does. It does. So, it's, it's really hard to understand some of the things we're talking about. And then you see a picture. And mm-hmm. just, I mean, a picture really is worth a thousand words. Uh, and it comes across it really is. in a lot yeah. of our discipline. That's right. Um, so when you go beyond magazines, uh, another magazine size and style of thing uh, is the journal, which we've already mentioned, the academic journal. And these are usually journals that are sometimes tied to certain archaeological societies, like American Antiquity is a big one for, for archaeology. And that's the journal of the Society for American Archaeology. Uh, you've got uh, is the SHA, the Society of Historical Archaeology, is theirs just called Historical Archaeology? I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, I don't even is. get it. Yeah, that's our journal. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've got Historical Archaeology. Um, then you've got other journals that you probably have heard of, like Nature and, uh, science. you know, things like that. Science. Yeah. Those are both peer-reviewed journals, but they're sold on, like, newsstands, um, like magazines are, but they're also peer-reviewed journals. So that's one good way for the general public to actually get that stuff because you can't buy American Antiquity and Historical Archaeology at your local grocery store, but you can probably buy Nature and you can probably buy Science. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Um, I love the idea of the distribution of American Antiquity or something being like <laughs> next to Better Homes and Gardens. Right. <laughs> that would, I mean, that would really say something positive about the society and world we live in. My God. April, you just invented the Archaeology Podcast Network's next media venture, which is a journal called Ancient Homes and Gardens. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to exist. You know, that could actually be really fun. Yeah. Prehistoric <laughs> recipes, cleaning tips. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Like on our last podcast, we had uh, Abby Cox talking about 18th century like hair care and dresses and stuff that belongs in ancient homes and gardens. Well, and there's the cooking with archaeologists. We did a podcast about that, too. Yep. So, all right. Well, then. Yeah. All right. Well, since neither April or I have time to do this, if you're listening to this and want to steal this idea, please go. But then you just give us subscriptions for life. Yes, If please. you could, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, the only thing we ask. <laughs> Done. Uh, that's right. So what are some other places people can find archaeological writing that you can think of? Well, I mean, I think 
blogs. I think there are a lot of professional archaeologists who have blogs. Um, one of the big things mm-hmm. that we've mentioned a bunch on this podcast is the fact that there's an increasing push for public outreach. And so, um, you know, and finding new ways to communicate with the public. And so I think a lot of well-known archaeologists write these blogs where they are discussing things that you know, are just kind of casual and fun topics of interest for them. Um, little, um, some archaeological projects, big name archaeological projects run um, pot, uh, Facebook pages and blogs mm-hmm. where they're posting updates. So if there's a region or topic that you're really interested in, it's easy to track down some of the projects that are working in those areas and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of track what's going on with them. I think it's part of the beauty of social media right now. Um, is mm-hmm. academia is slow to catch on, but we are catching on and we're starting right. to mobilize and use it and leverage it. Um, so I think that's kind of neat. And what's interesting there too, is it's, it's a lot, sometimes it's a little more up to date. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, you know, periodically you see these news articles come out, um, that are sort of sensationalist, like, Oh, this new site. Um, but you know that actually this is a discovery that or a project that people have been working on for six years and it's just finally, you know, NPR (laughs) or science has caught on or found out about this and they've sent their reporters out and they're talking to the archaeologists. Um, And so sometimes, sometimes the internet resources are actually a little bit more up to date than the print ones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our scientists in general are so paranoid about what they, their most recent, you know, amazing discovery getting out into the media actually too soon before they've had a chance yeah. to fully analyze and, and really do some quality research. And one of the one of the best examples I remember about that was the the uh, ancient human fossil. And I want to say it was like um, Sahelanthropus chadensis, I think it was um, the one from Chad that was like seven million years old or whatever. Uh, Tim White, who's a famous paleoanthropologist, uh, found that. And I don't know if that was the right one or not, but it was around that time frame. But he, his team discovered that, and they spent something like eight or nine years or more, this whole massive team of people with a massive gag order that they couldn't publish or do anything. And they did all this research. They did all these things. They wrote all these articles. They, con- they coordinated with a number of journals and said, we want in the same month all these articles to come out about this thing simultaneously. And they got it done. And uh, nobody knew anything about what they were doing. And it was almost a decade after they found it. And then all of a sudden, bam, you've got, you know, environmental studies, tooth studies, you know, cranial studies, all these different things that came out from all these different experts. And nothing like that has ever been done since, I don't think. And it was kind of amazing. People just want to – people don't have the ability to wait. They just want to get out there and say – first, they want to say that what they found, but they want to do it in the right way that they've done the research. But, you know, do they have the time? That's, that's a really good – that's a great case, like, example of yeah. that, too. So some of the other ways um, that we can talk about here, which I think will segue into hopefully next ep- the next episode, if we can get the interview scheduled in time, um, is archaeological societies. Um, sometimes they put out these these like local archaeology chapters from from major archaeological societies or maybe state archaeological societies might put out their own publications. And a lot of times stuff like this is written by people who are interested, like avocational archaeologists, so it might be a little more readable. Um, but they're not probably doing like – really in-depth research either um, just because of the nature of what they're talking about. Um, But that'd be a good way because I think we're hopefully going to have on somebody who heads up an archaeological, uh, a chapter of an archaeological society uh, in the Intermountain region in Colorado. And we're going to have him on to talk about that at some point in the future. I don't know when, but at some point in the future, we're scheduling the interview now. So 
Um, but I think that's another way you can you can get access to that. Well, and actually, that's often a really good way to find out about what's going on in your own region. Um, you know, when you, especially if you're new to an area but are interested in archaeology, mm-hmm. it's kind of hard because because archaeological resources are so sensitive. You know, often it's mm-hmm. hard to go out and find all the find ones that aren't sort of broad public on public land are well known and heavily visited. But often if you hook up with these archaeological societies, you know, they are other people who are really interested. They know the cool resources um, and they organize trips there. They talk about them, they research Mm -hmm. them and they work to preserve them. So that's really pretty cool. All right. Well, I think um, I think that's about all we can wring out of this topic, really. Um, and as April attempts to put her house back together, because um, I think the babies have uh, uh, have destroyed it completely. Um, I, all I will say to, uh, to finish this out is, if you are seeing some writing about an archaeological site, whether it's in a newspaper, on Facebook, um, you know, somebody's post, a news station, uh, or in a journal or something like that that you find. Um, just be cautious and look at the source. Uh, if, if the journalist doesn't cite a source or a place where they got the article, then take it with a grain of salt a little bit. Don't read it as the be-all, end-all. Because like any science, archaeology, even though what we pull out of the ground, we're looking at it saying, oh, well, this is pretty irrefutable. It's a statue or it's a bowl or it's a something. We haven't probably fully made interpretations on what that means. So you have to keep that in mind. And, and like any science, just look at it and say, hey, um, that's cool. We'll wait until they come out with further research and see what's going to happen. So I think that's about all I've got. And uh, we'll get uh, April get back to trying to quiet the babies down so she can get back to writing herself. <laughs> yep. It's, a, it's an endless <laughs> task, writing. Um, but it's fun. I mean, I think that's one of the best, the most interesting things about writing archaeologically is how it allows you to think about your data and think about your data mm-hmm. a whole bunch of different ways as you present it to different audiences. And, you know, sometimes late at night when you're lying in bed thinking about writing, all of a sudden you kind of come to realizations about your data Mm -hmm. and what you're seeing archaeologically that change how you view the site. And I think that that's kind of amazing. Nice. That's right. Okay. Well, I think we're going to call it, like I said. So uh, in the meantime, if you want more from the Archaeology Podcast Network, go check out our site at arcpodnet.com. Check out uh, .com slash members and to see how you can support us and become a member and get some free swag in the process. And then check out uh, arcpodnet.com forward slash shop so you can check out where you can buy these fantastic coffee mugs, which I drink from every time we do a show. And uh, I'm wearing a T-shirt right now, actually. And you can get all the stickers and anything you want at those resources. So thanks a lot. Thanks, April. Uh, Thanks, babies. (laughs) We will try to get another show written up and talk to you about that later. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning 
keep discovering new things, and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Fro.